Hey everybody, I'm Logan Camden. I'm Carson Briber. And this is Nerd Sesh. No! Oh my God, how could he do that? Are you on Donate What? Charles Darwin. All right, well, tis the season, Logan. We are coming up on the NBA All-Star Weekend, presuming that we actually do have one, which is what it seems to be trending towards. But whether we do or if we do not, we will have All-Star teams. So today, we're going to be selecting them with the deadline coming up pretty soon. Tomorrow is when they will announce the starters in both conference. Then we have another week or so before the reserves come out. But we're going to be picking our full teams today. Now, this is an exceptionally difficult year, I would say, for a number of reasons, most notably because... We only have 20-something games of data from all these guys, which just makes it a lot harder than when you have 50 or 50-something like we normally do by All-Star Weekend. But we got to make the choices nonetheless. So let's start with these starters out west, Logan. In the front court, who do you have there? In my western front court, Carson, I have Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James, and Nikola Jokic. Okay, so I have the same group. I think that this was one of the easier groups to choose. Let's start with Jokic. I think he's a pretty obvious choice, but why did he have to be on your team? I mean, he's been the best offensive center in basketball this season. You could argue Joel Embiid, but uh, what he's been doing in carrying this Nuggets offense has been special. They're plus 14.5 points per possession offensively with him on the floor on 57-39-86 shooting splits, and he's got 9.1 on off splits. Jokic is just... He's the engine for the Nuggets. Setting screens, uh, doing a bunch of DHOs. Shout out. I know that's your favorite phrase, Carson. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> he's blazing from behind the arc. Uh, Jokic is just single-handedly carrying an offense in the NBA the way I don't think we've ever seen in the league before and the way no other player is in the league this season. I'm really weirded out by your obsession with the one time I said DHO. It's not my favorite phrase. It's just a phrase or a term that exists. Jokic is having the greatest offensive season, not of any big man this year, of any big man ever, and he is having the greatest offensive season of any player this year, and he should be the MVP for all the reasons you touched on. I've talked about it so much at this point, made a full YouTube video about it that you can go and check out. I don't need to say any more. LeBron, I would say another pretty easy choice, but why does he have to be here? Yeah, I mean, LeBron's a no-brainer every year, and compared to other years, Carson, I would honestly say LeBron is still kind of coasting. The Lakers just kind of go into these lulls offensively during games. They just go into lulls in general, but uh, <laughs> LeBron's LeBron. You don't really need a whole lot of uh, backstory here. Yeah, I agree. He's putting up 26-8-8 on 50-38-71 splits on a 22-7 and team. He's the best player in the league. Maybe not the best player this regular season because of the coasting you referred to, but he is having a career jump shooting season, which goes, I would say, along with that coasting, not trying to get inside as much, not playing maybe as physically bruising of a style, but is having a killer season from behind the arc, a career high in three-point attempts, a career high in three-pointers made, 38% from deep. I think that is just a continued really development in the evolution of his game that is going to make him dominant offensively in this league for so long. Now, I will say, I don't think he should be the MVP frontrunner like some people seem to believe, although maybe the raw statistics would suggest so along with the team success. The coasting does matter to me, and I think that there are other guys who are actually having to carry significantly more of an individual load for teams that aren't maybe having quite as much team success, but are having team success nonetheless. Kawhi, we both have him as well. I would say another easy decision, but why does he have to be here? Uh, he's putting up 26 and a half, five and five, and he's in the 90th percentile of points per possession defensively. He's still one of the best perimeter defenders in basketball. He's done a great job of creating for his other teammates this season. Um, even with a new cast of crew that he has this year, 
38% from deep, 51% from the field, 87% from the free throw line this season. Those are all higher than his normal career averages. And, and the Clippers are still one of the best teams out West. And he's the best player on the team. I thought Kawhi was another no-brainer in the front court out West. I think there's a strong case to be made that he is having the best offensive regular season of his career when you look at just the mind-blowing efficiency and then also, of course, the development as a playmaker. I think that it's between this year or last year, and I would certainly take this year when you look at just really improved shooting across the board, shooting 51% on two-and-a-half catch-and-shoot threes per game. That is just otherworldly when you're talking about also one of the great isolation scores that we have, one of the great mid-range artists. And you talk about his value to winning, the Clippers obviously among the league's elite teams this season. They are 15.7 points per 100, better with Kawhi on the floor than off it. A very telling number, I would say. And they're great for this entire starting five, which has been phenomenal this season. But Kawhi is clearly still the best man out of that group, although a teammate of his is playing exceptionally well, also having another historic offensive season. But was there anyone who you really considered putting in as your starter there in the front court? I mean, if there was going to be anybody, I would say Paul George probably, um, just because he's been, I think this is the best Paul George we've ever seen. We'll get into that. Um, in my opinion. I also did consider, I'm not going to lie to you, Carson, briefly, I did think about Rudy Gobert just because of how, like, he's been the best defender in basketball once again this season, but (laughs) Jokic has been the best center in basketball this year total. Very interesting. I didn't really give a hard look at either of them. PG, I would say, though, probably made the most compelling case, and we'll get into his success this season when we get to him. Let's look at the backcourt, where I think you have a few loaded options. One real superstar guy is going to have to get left out of this mix. I went with Curry and Luka. Who did you go with? I also went with Curry and Luka, but it was a very close race. So let's start with Curry, because I would say that he is the lock of the group playing, I would say, as good of basketball as he ever has. Why does he have to be here? And it's funny that you say that, Carson, because his numbers this year are identical from his MVP season, field goals, attempted uh, points per game, uh, stuff like that. But uh, the big thing for Curry this season, he's been the most efficient scorer in basketball, the highest true shooting percentage in the league at 66.9%. Again, he's dropping 30 points per game with five rebounds, five assists on 49-43-93 splits. Uh Curry's just been exceptional at scoring the basketball this season. And I think, Carson, you've swayed me in these recent weeks. I think this is the best Steph Curry that we've ever seen. Yeah, incredible out of the pick and roll this year, doing more creation for himself than I would say even in his MVP season with less spacing from his teammates around him, guys who are capitalizing on his gravity less than in years past, having just a ridiculous individual season and has propelled this team to a level of success that they should not have had. I feel like we've discussed his dominance thoroughly enough, so I don't need to go much more to that. Let's talk about Luka, though, because I think obviously the other main contender for this spot is Dame Honestly, wasn't that close for me. Dame is certainly playing like an all-star starter in most seasons, but we're having the greatest offensive season in basketball history, and there's no tougher place to be an all-star starter than the Western Conference backcourt. So what sort of helped you make that decision, and why does Luka have to be here? Well, I think there is an argument to be made for Dame just because of how much better he is shooting from behind the arc, but the argument to that, I would say, is Damian has a roster built around him offensively that would help any point guard succeed with the amount of dynamic scorers and shooters that they have. He plays alongside Gary Trent, C.J. McCollum, Carmelo. If Luka has any of these shooters, the Mavericks are so much better offensively. He's not having to pull all of these deep shots. He's averaging more assists. Still, Luka is averaging 29-8-9 this season. I mean, and that's with his teammates fluctuating between percentages every night. Yes, the Mavericks can get hot, but they're not consistent the way the Trailblazer shooters have been 
all season long. You give Luka an elite shooter, and I think people recognize his value so much more. And I think that that's kind of what the Mavs had last year. They were a great shooting team, and they were therefore the best offense of all time because of the maestro they have running the show. I have Luka as well, as I said earlier. You mentioned the raw production, but I just think he is significantly better than he was even last year and has gotten better even within this season as his shooting has gotten more and more consistent. I think his ability to operate out of the mid-range, out of the post, is a continued area of growth. I think his closing has gotten better. And over the last 14 games, he's giving you 32 a night on 49-39-83 splits. And we can criticize the Mavs team success. Luka has nothing to do with that. In minutes he plays, the Mavs offense would rank fourth in offensive rating. They rank 25th without him. In my opinion, he's the best pick and roll player in basketball. I think arguably both as a passer, where we know incredible lob throwing, eyes all over his head can make every pass in the book, see shooters who nobody should be able to see, and as a scorer because of his lethal change in pace, his floater touch, his ability to draw fouls, his finishing around the rim, all of that. When he is shooting like this, like he has been over the last 14 games, I think he's the best offensive player in basketball. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes he goes through a 10-game stretch where he shoots 28 or 30% from deep, but when he's a 40% shooter, when that step back is falling every time, he is a truly unstoppable offensive player, and there's never really much you can do to counter it, it, but sometimes he'll just miss himself, and he is not doing that right now. He is playing basically perfect basketball, so... I had to go with him. I think that he is the only reason that this team is competitive, and I think that they are still better than their record would suggest as they're starting to get healthier, and he's had to survive a number of injuries as well. But I do think that the same applies for Dame to a certain extent, obviously, with CJ having been out for the last 15 games or so, with Nurk having been out for a little bit longer than that even. Let's talk about Dame. He's easily the first guy on my bench. I think that he has to be there, obviously, but why does he have to be there? I mean, he's been elite at running the Trailblazers offense, even with the myriad of injuries they've had to deal with, with Yusuf Nurkic out, with CJ McCollum out. He has been the constant here. 29.5 points per game, four boards, seven assists on 44-38-93 splits. Offensively, the Blazers are plus 11.8 for 100 possessions better, and he is in the 100th percentile of that, literally one of the best offensive engines in basketball. He's still elite at running the pick and roll, the 92nd percentile this year. And to speak to the proficiency of his shooters this season, Carson, McCollum is over 48% on his catch and shoot threes. Lillard is at 44%. Gary Trent is at 45%. He has just got dangerous weapons around him, and he has been elite in catch and shoot situations as well. Um, I would say, Carson, I do think Lillard is the second best point guard in basketball. Uh, but I do think there's still a slight discrepancy between him and Curry. I guess it just depends on if you consider Luka a point guard or not. I would say that I absolutely do. I don't know what else he does. Would you consider Harden a point guard? In this current system, I would. I don't think he's maybe as true of a point guard in the traditional sense, but if you're the primary ball handler, if you're facilitating at the level that these guys are, I don't know what else to call you. I think LeBron's a point guard, and it's kind of a useless debate, I would say, at this point because basketball is trending so positionless. But I think all those guys are effectively point guards. Certainly Luka, though, and obviously certainly Dame, who I think you touched on a lot of it, has just carried this team offensively. Now he does have great floor spacers around him, but they are a top five offense in basketball, and that does not happen without him. And despite CJ coming on so strong to start the season, they have really survived and played incredibly well offensively without him. And I think that Dame can just get you buckets in so many ways, has such a knack for drawing fouls both around the rim and also as a jump shooter. I think he's the best in the league at that outside of James Harden, uh, has been efficient from the floor, has continued to 
playmake at a level that we hadn't seen from him before last season. And these last two years of Dame has just been another elevation from the superstar player that we had already grown to know and love. And I just think that he's having either the best or second best year of his career. Plus 11.8 on off splits, huge impact on winning there. And the Blazers, again, are among the top five teams in the West when that should probably not be the case given their defensive issues and their injuries. And I think that Dame has a lot to do with that. So he deserves credit there. I just think individually, his playmaking value does not compare to Luka's. And that's the biggest thing. Dame can average seven and a half assists per game. I would say that he does not open up as many doors as Luka does. And I also think Luka's unstoppability factor when he has just those 40, 10, and 10 nights because he's getting into the lane every time. He's drawing fouls. He's not missing from beyond the arc. That's just a different level of an offensive player, in my opinion. Well, I would say Luka's better on the drive than any player in the NBA. I would largely agree. And I think that that's why he's the best pick and roll player in basketball. So incredible seasons from both of them, nonetheless. I'm going to be a little bit presumptive here and say that your other backup guard is Donovan Mitchell. Is that overly presumptive? No, you're correct. Okay, so let's talk about the season that he's had. Why does he have to be here? I mean, I think Mitchell, when you look at his on-off splits, when you look at the production from that side, it's not really that impressive on either end of the ball. But because of what he means to this Jazz uh, offense and this team, because of what team success they've had, I think he has to be here. And I think Rudy Gobert also has to be here. Because the Jazz are number one in the West, you have to have their best offensive player on the board. This isn't the most impressed I have been with Donovan Mitchell. I've been more impressed with his teammates this season, like Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson. But that being said, he is still impressed. 24 points per game, four boards, five assists a night. I think the next step for Donovan Mitchell, if he really wants to elevate his game to the next level, is becoming this elite-level playmaker. We always know that Donovan Mitchell can get his buckets. But if the Jazz want to have success when it comes playoff time, if they want to have success in winning games, Mitchell has just got to become a better facilitator at moving the basketball because this Jazz team has got a lot of really good ISO stars in Mitchell and Clarkson. They're really good at getting buckets by themselves. But to get to that next level, I think Mitchell has to become this team's true point guard when, and I'm not saying Mike Conley's been excellent this season as well, but they definitely need one more facilitator. And, and they're elite at moving the basketball, but that is the next progression in Donovan Mitchell's style of play. I agree. I think that that's always been the case. And if you look at guys who have that true elite superstar offensive value, they are the guys who can do everything for you offensively. Mitchell has grown as a playmaker though. And I think that that's one of the big area of, of areas of growth for him this season. And I also think the other big area of growth is just his perimeter shooting. 39% from deep this year, far and away career high, 46% on catch and shoot threes. Just gives him off ball value that he hasn't had previously. And also... Mitchell has always been a bucket inside the three-point line, around the rim, is an electric finisher, a dynamic athlete, has always had a pretty strong pull-up game from the mid-range. He's actually not shooting quite as well for mid-range this year, only 36% from that area, but the three-point value more than makes up for that. It's the most important thing that he can have, and I think that that raises his ceiling as a player, and I think that he absolutely has to be rewarded for the Jazz's team success, but also, as you mentioned, that is the ultimate collective effort. Guys who move the ball, shoot the hell out of the ball, play elite team defense, and Mitchell is only a component in that, but he is arguably their best player. I would say he's their best player when it comes to a playoff situation where you really need to go out there and win games and have that elite high-level score. Regular season impact, you can argue him or Gobert. I may take Gobert, but regardless, I think that they both need to be here. So let's get into the front court now. Who do you have there? So the first guy I would say, well, let's flow it naturally. Let's talk about Gobert. Um, okay. Players shoot 7% worse on their overall field goal percentage when guarded by Gobert because you have to go into these different type of stats when you're talking about Rudy because his 
regular numbers don't really impress you. Offensively, he's putting up 14 points per game, 13 boards on 64% in the field. Not really anything mind-blowing, but when guys get to him at the rack, they shoot 12.3% worse than average within six feet. His on-off splits are excellent this season at 12.6. Uh, he is genuinely the best defender in basketball. When I've seen guys slip this year, Bam Adebayo has not been as dominant in protecting the rack this season. Um, Anthony Davis has nowhere near been as dominant as he has been in protecting the rack. Rudy Gobert is back to being the best defensive player in basketball and the best rim protector in basketball. Although there are a few guys out east, I would say, that aren't getting as much all-star acclaim uh, like Miles Turner or um, uh, Jared Allen, who are also great at protecting the rim. But when it comes to defensive rotations, and even and this doesn't even speak to what he does offensively. I think Gobert does a lot offensively that doesn't really appear in the stat sheet. Just commanding attention in the paint. Guys have to go there, and that opens up so much more spacing for shooters. But defensively is where his major impact is, as it has always been. I think he's the best rim protector in basketball. I think he's the best rim protector and the best defender in basketball. I think you can argue that along with Anthony Davis and Bam Adebayo, he is the best big man at switching out to the perimeter as well. You talked about his incredible rim protection stats, but he holds people more than 5% below their average on threes as well to 32%. I think he's the smartest defensive big man in basketball if we're not considering Draymond a big, and I think that he has been for quite some time. And last year was a bit of an aberration in that the Jazz were not an elite team defense. Every other year that Gobert's been at his peak, they have been just because he is there and he is that kind of deterrent and that he can be so switchable and just so dominant everywhere. And now the Jazz are, again, the number two defense in basketball because of him. Go and show me the other really impressive individual defenders in Utah. You can make a case for Royce O'Neal, maybe Joe Ingles because of his ability to scrap there, but there's not many individual real plus defenders. It's all the gravity of Gobert on the defensive end. And I will say offensively, Obviously, has massive, massive limitations, but he is one of the best screeners, and he is a pretty good finisher around the rim. He's 88th percentile as a pick-and-roll role man this year, so I think you have to reward the best team in basketball and the guy who has made that possible completely, basically on his own on one end of the floor, and that is Rudy Gobert. So we got two more front court spots, and then we get into our wild cards, but who rounds out the bench front court for you? Uh, Anthony Davis has to be here, even with his injury. Again, he is still one of the best defenders in basketball. And to speak to the fact I was talking about coasting, I think AD and LeBron both are. I think they're kind of just taking the regular season off. They're waiting until playoff time, and that's when they're really going to step it up. Still, he's been impressive. 22.5 points per game, 8.5 boards, 3 assists, plus 4 in his own off splits. Definitely not what we've come to expect out of AD, but still... He's been dominant, um, and he's the reason that the Lakers has been able to keep up where they are defensively. The Lakers still have the best defensive rating in basketball, and that is largely attributed to AD being able to switch. And honestly, Carson, I love having those sets with Marcus Gasol out there because it frees him up to do so much more on the perimeter, switching into guys on the corner, just being able to get into so many more lanes because that's not AD's game. AD's a really good rim protector, but it's not what he wants to do. He's so much better at situational defending and switching on the guys through screens, through uh, when they get into the corner. It's He is just the best switch. Uh, I think he's the best rotational defender in basketball. Interesting. So I have AD here as well. I think that this has been a relatively unimpressive season for him considering the regular season dominance that we became accustomed to. Only 22.5, 8.5, and 3 a game on 53, 29, 71.5 splits. But I think that it all comes down to what you talked about with 
the coasting factor. He's taking almost three free throws less per game than last year. We're seeing less aggressive shots around the rim, more floaters, more jump shots. He is incredibly skilled, shooting a pretty ridiculous 62% on floaters, but the historic jump shooting, or I should say at least historic for him jump shooting that we saw in last year's playoffs when he was up around 50% has come very much down to earth. He's now shooting about 32% on jumpers this year. I don't think he's giving it his all on defense. That's interesting to me. We can debate where he's best served defensively. I think it is personally as a five who can also roam the perimeter and switch at a really high level. I think that though his defensive rim protection is still his most valuable skill. And so if he wants to play alongside fives for his entire career, that's fine. He can be a great defensive four as well. I think he can excel at either. I would love to see him, though, as that more traditional rim protector, and maybe we see more of that come playoff time. But regardless, he just doesn't seem to fully care either way, and hopefully he is healthy, obviously, having just endured an Achilles injury. Hope that he is able to get back out there relatively soon. He does still need to be an all-star. I think he's probably a top five player in the world. I had him there when we did our rankings. He may not be playing at it right like that right now, but he's still playing well enough, certainly, to be an all-star lock. Last front court guy, I have Paul George. I believe you do as well. Why does he have to be here? Yeah, I have PG as well. And I just think this is the best version of shooting Paul George that we've ever seen. Even if it's letting other guys create for him and just spotting up in the corner. On corner threes, 58% and 71%. On catch and shoot threes, he's shooting 52%. From deep as a hole, he's shooting nearly 48% from the field as a whole. 51. That's 24 points per game, six boards, five and a half assists per game. And he's shooting 90% from the line. He's just the ideal 3 and D weapon you could have alongside any other big superstar. Not negative 9.5 points per defend, uh, possession defensively. That's 94th percentile. Paul George is one of the most elite 3 and D wings in basketball. That's why he has to be here. He's just He fits perfectly with any team. And like I said, Carson, I think Paul George is a decent creator in getting other guys open. I think he is best served in this role as a... A guy who can take his ISO possessions when necessary and get you a bucket, but just serve as a, uh, a stretch shooter and a guy who can just stretch the floor and open up space for other guys. So it's interesting because part of my critique of PG last year was that we weren't seeing aggressive superstar Paul, superstar Paul George enough. He was too content to sort of float around on the perimeter. So much of his offense was coming out of catch and shoot threes. But when you're talking about this historic level of efficiency... You're right, it is clearly the best option for this offense. He is the only player ever to make 47% of seven or more three-point attempts per game. You mentioned the ridiculous numbers off the catch. He's also, I would say, evolved as a playmaker to a certain extent. The five and a half assists per game is telling there. On-off splits are incredible, plus 10.8. I would say it's definitely the second best regular season of his career. You say that it's the best he's ever been. I just think his role is infinitely infinitely easier here than it was in Oklahoma City when he had to be the kind of offensive engine that maybe he wasn't best suited for. And obviously the efficiency is not comparable. We did see him definitely taking more mid-range jumpers there, but I think that was out of necessity. He had to just be that offensive engine and didn't get as many of those quality looks, didn't have the same spacing. We were seeing him get to the rim a lot more, take a lot more free throws. I think he was playing better defensively, more on the glass. Regardless, that's not the debate that we're having today. Either way, he is a no-brainer all-star selection. So let's get into the wild cards now. Wild card number one, who do you have? I gave it to Devin Booker, and I want to get something straight. I don't think Devin Booker does the most to drive winning on the Phoenix Suns. I think it's a reason why the Suns struggled to make the playoffs in any year that Devin Booker was the offensive engine. I think Chris Paul definitely drives it more. He, uh, 16 and a half points per game for Paul this season, 8.2 assists. But I just feel like 
it's almost like a passing of the torch at this point. Like we just gotta we gotta move on. We gotta let Devin Booker have his moment in the sun for what he's done in these previous years and how he scored. Because this year, it's definitely not been the most impressive he's been offensively. In years previous, he's been the offensive engine. Uh, and that's not really his role. He's not really an assist guy. He is a takeover shooter and scorer. Nearly 24.5 points per game this season on 49 and 35% splits. He hasn't even been shooting as well as he normally has in previous seasons. But that being said, I just feel like it's like a career trophy at this point, Carson. I feel like he's done enough in these years previous to get his first all-star nod, even though I think this individual season, Chris Paul deserves a little more. So I disagree with your assessment that this is somehow just, let's give it to Book because he's earned it in years past. I have seen a lot of people who I respect leaving Book off of their all-star ballot, and I do not understand it in the slightest. His efficiency is very similar to last year. He's in the 94th percentile as a cutter. He's in the 93rd percentile out of the post as a guard. And yeah, small sample size, but that is disgusting. He's the most versatile scoring guard in basketball. I say it every time. He is very clearly showing that. He's slightly more efficient out of the pick and roll than last year, shooting 50% from mid-range, shooting 42% on catch and shoot threes, scoring in every single way. When he's on the court, the Suns' offensive rating is 118.1. That is third in basketball this year. It would be the best of all time outside of this season, and it would be 23rd in the league when he sits. His playmaking has only slightly decreased because they have Chris Paul now, and as you mentioned, his role has changed. So I don't think that this is about he's been better in years past. This is the best he's ever been, and just the fact that his raw production isn't the same because he has made an adjustment for winning, he should be commended for that. That shouldn't even be a factor as a criticism, and he has his issues defensively, but they're still sixth in defensive rating and are an elite basketball team, so I think you'd be pretty hard-pressed to convince me that that should actually be held against him. So this is not targeted at you, because you do have him here, and I know that I am getting fired up, but are we actually going to punish him because they're winning and his volume has slightly decreased when he's playing off ball as much as ever and doing it more effectively when he's as versatile as a scoring weapon as he's ever been? And by the way, his scoring numbers are certainly underselling how brilliant he is in that role. You're telling me that he couldn't do what Zach Levine does? Of course he could if he had that volume of opportunities and more so. So I just think people don't know what they want from Book. People seem to hold everything against him. He should absolutely be here. I think he's a no-brainer. Well, I do think there is an aspect of book that, that we haven't addressed yet. What about his defensive limitations, Carson? Well, that's what I just said. If you can still have an elite team defense, that's not enough to really hold against the guy and keep him off the ballot, in my opinion. So this is interesting. Do you have Chris Paul on your team as well? I do have Chris Paul on my team as well. Because I have an open spot. I think I'm going to go with that. So you were undecided previously. I had literally had an open spot between three guards because I couldn't make up my mind. Okay, so I'll make the case for CP3. He's having a interesting season, I would say. Now, he's been playing really well as of late, but definitely was pretty passive in the early goings, much more focused on playmaking than scoring. He's now up to 17-5-8 on 49-37-97 splits. The offensive numbers that we're seeing throughout basketball this season are just so ridiculous, far and away the best that we have ever seen. But I talk about him coasting. One time in the game in which he has never coasted, is in the fourth quarter. He has been an elite closer this entire season. 6.1 fourth quarter points per game on 54% from the field, 42% from three. That's over 35% of his total points coming just in the most important quarter of the game. Four clutch points per game is 14th in basketball on 48% from the field, 36% from three. He's an elite scorer when he wants to be. The defense isn't what it used to be, but I think he's still a plus there. A brilliant playmaker out of the pick and roll has helped facilitate this offense. I do want to point out though, 
I talk about Book's offensive impact and his gravity there, where they are what would have before this season been the best offense of all time with him on the floor. That is not true for Chris Paul. I don't think Chris Paul is the most important player for this team when it comes to winning. I think that it is still Devin Booker. Offensively, I think he's on a different level as a player right now. And so, yes, there have been times when when CP3 has stepped up and he has been their go-to scorer in crunch time and all of that is fine and dandy, but Book's versatility, his ability to kill you having the ball in his hands for a split second on all three levels is so valuable It just upsets me that he's not getting his just due because now they are winning. And yeah, he's scoring two less points and putting up two less assists per game, but who cares? All you guys ever said is this guy needs to win and he's winning and he's equally efficient and he's doing it in as many ways as ever. What more does he have to do? He's a top 20 player in basketball. He's playing like it right now and he's a no-brainer as an all-star. We're talking about Chris Paul though, so talk about Chris Paul. I think we found our video content for today. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Chris, I think, honestly, Carson, I think this is the most unimpressive Chris Paul has ever been as an NBA player this season. Um, Defensively, I don't think he's the same beast, but I think he is the perfect point guard to play alongside Devin Booker. He commands the same attention. He is clutch at closing out games when all of the attention is focused on Devin Booker. It's just so hard for me because the, the three guys that were right off of my ballot, Paul, Fox, SGA, I'm not going with SGA because he doesn't he doesn't impact winning like Chris Paul or Devin Booker. I'm not going to go with the Aaron because the Kings just simply, they, they've been on a bit of a tear, but they still aren't the upper echelon of teams. The Suns are winning basketball games. Chris Paul has been doing it efficiently. And I think they fit right alongside each other. Um, yeah, so I'm going to go with Chris Paul as my last spot. It's a tough call, but he's been, imp- I think that, I think you're still underselling how Chris Paul impacts winning on this basketball. Well, I think that he is certainly crucial to winning. I just think to say the difference is Chris Paul is unfair to Devin Booker, who has been dealing with some of the worst rosters in basketball for some time. And sure, maybe he doesn't have that individual gravity to carry a team to being a lead offense because maybe he doesn't have that playmaking. But neither does CP3. Look at the Thunder. They weren't a great offensive team, and he can get all the credit in the world for that. But he also had great talent around him and a really, really strong team defense that is what ultimately made them successful. And the exact same thing is happening here in Phoenix. And Chris Paul may be the common denominator and maybe a great basketball player and maybe genuinely unstoppable for mid-range when it comes to winning time, which makes him terrifying there. And all this is true, but it doesn't mean that he's some superhuman guy who fixed a broken franchise in Phoenix. Everything has come together in Phoenix. No, I completely agree. And I was just going to say, he just makes, he makes so many more players on this team better than just Devin Booker. Like DeAndre Ayton is the best we've ever seen because he's playing alongside a competent point guard who is feeding him the rock. Uh, we, we are getting off topic on the all-star talk here. No, but I think it's relevant because my first two guys off are Fox and SGA as well. And I think that the logic is very much related to what we've been talking about. Those dudes are having awesome seasons, but I just have to think if Chris Paul had the same volume of opportunity and if he were motivated to play really hard for a team that's not so great at 36 years old, then I think he would be absolutely excelling there. It's the Bradley Beal conundrum. I think it is to a certain extent, except these guys aren't scoring 33 points per game. They're scoring 22-23 and are having awesome years, efficient, especially SGA, incredible efficiency from him. And we had the debate between which of the two of them we would take on just one of our episodes last week. They're having awesome years, but one dude is doing it in a winning context, is doing it as a playmaker on the defensive end, as a clutch scorer. All of that to me just favors Chris Paul. Were there any other tough cuts for you in the Western Conference? Um, I wanted to get Christian Wood on this team. Uh, his injury kind of sold. I'm not going to lie. I was going to ask Chris Paul if Christian Wood was healthy just because I love him. I, 
If you haven't seen the video yet, uh, Carson made it on why Wood impacts the Rockets the way he does, how he has been their best offensive and defensive player this season. I think all of that is relevant. He has been elite this year. I think he should have been an all-star if he was healthy. Um, another guy, I also wanted John Morant with the games he has missed. I couldn't really swing that. Also, the Grizzlies look really good in his absence, so there is that argument. But um, as it compares to these other guys that we mentioned, I, I don't think they hold a candle after the injuries. Yeah, I think that Wood certainly would have had a case had he been healthy, and we hope that he gets well soon. I don't think he would have been my choice, though. I think a healthy C.J. McCollum very well could and probably would have been one of my choices. He's been giving you 27 a game on the best efficiency of his career. As it is, though, currently with those injuries, my first two guys off were a couple of New Orleans Pelicans, Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson, or not my first two guys off because SGA and De'Aaron Fox were my first two guys off. My next two guys off, Zion is having a pretty historic offensive season. B.I. is basically producing what he did last year when he was an all-star, but I think that we see both of them have such massive defensive limitations, and they're both together, and it's not equating to winning. All of that matters to me. You were looking at me with disgust in your eyes. It just surprises me that I know how you feel about Zion, so it just surprises me that you would even consider him for the all-star game. Well, he's playing the best basketball of his life, and particularly over these last couple weeks, has just been completely unstoppable as a scorer. Now, I think we see that the Pelicans offense as a whole has its issues spacing-wise, and Zion, honestly, in a different situation, might have already been, in my opinion, deserving of an all-star nod. But I just think when a guy's averaging 24.6 and 7 on 61.5% from the field, you look at that no matter what, even if it's not in the prettiest fashion, even if he is an abysmal defender at this point in his career. Any B.I. love for you? Because he is basically doing what he did last year. Yeah, I mean, I considered it, but with the... With the upgrade of talent that the Pelicans have, the Pelicans just haven't won enough to have an all-star on this list. I think that I, for the most part, agree with that. I think that, again, they both have such big problems on the defensive end. It's tough to reward that. What's crazy to think about is in a fully healthy Western Conference when we have Klay Thompson even back in the mix, and considering that for the past few years we've had James Harden, we could have had CJ McCollum, John Morant be real contenders. So, so hard to make the all-star game out West. But I will say, I think it was the easier of the two conferences to ultimately make the 12 selections for. Now let's get into the one that I think gave me some real headaches, maybe a little bit of heartache, but I think I came down in a way that I am comfortable with. Let's start like we did with the West, with the front court starters, where I think it's nice and easy. Good, clean, fun. Who do you have there in the East? I've got KD, Giannis, and Joel Embiid. So let's start with KD then. Why does he have to be here? Uh, I mean, KD has been arguably the best offensive player on the Nets' loaded roster this season. But I will say, I think this is the best shooting version of KD that we've ever seen. He's got the highest true shooting percentage of his entire career at 65.2%. There hasn't been a drop-off at all in his jumper after this injury. 52% from the field, 43% from deep, 87% from the line on 29-7 and 5 a night. And... Honestly, in a bit of a reduced role, we've seen him more in this catch-and-shoot role. Not really, uh, they've let Harden take most of the minutes, command all of this attention, kick back out. KD has just been the same beast that he always has been after this injury, and um, I still think he's the best player and the best closeout uh, shooter on the Nets this season. I think this, this is the best shooter, the best shooting version of Kevin Durant we've ever seen, and that has to get rewarded with an All-Star start. I agree, and I don't think that we are thoroughly enough appreciating how insane what he's doing is to be doing this. Coming off of an Achilles tear, it is like nothing we have ever seen before. It's one of the greatest offensive seasons ever, frankly, not just of KD's career, but ever. I think that he is going to become very prominent in the MVP discussion, and maybe he ultimately doesn't get it because we have the factor of three superstars offensively on one team, but the Nets are coming on strong right now. They're second in the East, and 
I don't know how I could pick another team to make the finals when I look at just the impact of each of these guys' offensive gravities. All three of these guys are having career seasons as far as efficiency and for good reason because their jobs are the easiest they've ever been. It's just effortless. It's so beautiful. So much skill from all of these guys. But Katie is still the pinnacle and the best guy out of that group. And the big, you know, the big knock on why we thought the Nets might not play as well as they would is the cohesion factor. And I don't think that's an issue at all. I mean, Kyrie has let his, I guess, his ego down. He's just said, all right, I'm going to let Harden take guard. And it is... It works to perfection. This Nets offense runs smoother than anyone I've ever seen. It's the best offense I've ever seen. And I can very comfortably say that at this point. The Peak Warriors make a case. It's certainly a different kind of offense. But all three of these guys feel unstoppable because you can't double any of them, obviously. There's so much spacing around them at all times. It's just a basketball dream. They have... Honestly, an elite a lob threat in DeAndre Jordan, who I definitely soured on, but in this specific role, just rolling to the rim, his vertical ability, his athleticism is so valuable, his aggression around the rim, it's stupid, stupid easy for the Nets right now. And again, I think KD is the best guy out of that entire group. Joel Embiid, I think in a lot of people's eyes, the MVP front runner, not in my eyes, maybe not in your eyes, but regardless, having a career season, why does he have to be here? Yeah, I mean, he's been carrying the Sixers offensively when they've desperately needed it, and he's made all of his teammates better with the uh, attention he commands on the interior. 29.5 points per game, nearly 11 boards, nearly three assists, 54% from the field, that is his career high, 40% from deep, that is a career high, 85% from the free throw line, that is a career high. Plus 16.9 on off splits. He's in the 100th percentile for offensive points per possession at plus 13.9. But the big special thing, and you've touched on this in the past, Carson, about Joel Embiid, is just his shooting touch. This is the this is the version of Joel Embiid that I thought we could get if he maximized his potential out of the draft. This is the player that we saw at Kansas and thought, man, this kid's going to be special. He is just so, one, physically imposing. He's so good at setting screens and just bullying guys because of how big he is, but also... On the shooting, uh, on the shooting note, 39% catch and shoot this year. He is shooting 70% on shots 20 to 24 feet. He is shooting 56% on his mid-range shots and 58% on fadeaways. Joel Embiid just has this elite shooting touch that a man his size should not have. And it's made him a basically unstoppable player. And uh, obviously, I think we've seen some pretty good playmaking from him this year when people do try to double him, but there's the benefit of added spacing here with the couple of shooters that the Sixers have picked up, but that's the difference, man. When he can just pull up in people's mouths like this, when he can shoot fadeaways so effortlessly, his face-up game is at a different level. The catch-and-shoot threes, as you mentioned, still playing really good defense, is I would say a pretty elite rim protector, and as part of a Sixers defense that has been really, really good this season, and a Sixers team that has the one seed, he's a no-brainer, and is having far and away a career season, and it's so great to see because... I think some people thought he might be maybe an MVP contender heading into last season after he had such an incredible 2018-19 campaign. Then he regressed. He coasted. He didn't play as many minutes. He missed, as we always sort of expect him to, a decent amount of games. And now, not only does he care more, he's better so noticeably. And his team is better as well. So, another no-brainer. And then Giannis Antetokounmpo, two-time reigning MVP. Why does he have to be here? Giannis has to be here because of his defensive value. The uh, Bucks are six points per 100 possessions better defensively when he's on the floor. He's still getting 1.3 steals, 1.3 blocks. Um, and I think that offensively, we are seeing a player that is still great at attacking the rim and getting those. He's, he needs to become a better free throw shooter. That is a facet of his game. It's the second highest free throw rate of his career. He's always been great at getting to the line. He needs to fix that. 
Uh, I do have stylistical issues with the Bucks' offense and how they've run this Carson. Giannis should not be shooting as much as he is. Giannis should be used on the interior, in the post, where he's good, where he's efficient. He should let the other players like Middleton, Holiday, have bigger perimeter roles. Uh, Giannis should be handling the ball less. Like I have issues with how the Bucs are using Giannis and how he's playing this season. Defensively, he is still the same dominant perimeter defender that they have, but... Uh, I mean, like, he's still putting up his numbers, 28 points per game, but it's not an efficient 28 points per game. And so stylistically, I still have my issues with Giannis, but he's still this dominant uh, perimeter and post defender, great rebounder, great um, great athlete, great at getting uh, second chances for his team. It's just, I just have issues stylistically with him offensively. Yeah, and I would say it's been kind of a disappointing season, if you can say that about a guy putting up 28, 11 and a half and 6. 64% from the line on 10 attempts per game is disappointing. 29% from 3 on 4 attempts per game is disappointing. Average post play from him this season is disappointing. He hasn't evolved. He hasn't gotten better. That's going to continue to be the pitfall of this Bucks team until that changes or Chris Middleton becomes just otherworldly and a top 10 player in basketball. And he's having a phenomenal season, but he's still not there. And so that's the thing with this Bucks team. They've been disappointing as a whole. For them to be sitting at 16 and 12, this is a team that was 50 and 8 last year. And we all expected to be better. And that has not been the case. But regardless, we can sit here and criticize him. He's a no-brainer as an all-star. And I would say a no-brainer as an all-star starter. Nobody really pushed him in my eyes. Let's get into the backcourt here, where I think there are four there are four candidates that some people would consider viable. Who do you have here? So first, I have James Harden. He has been the fourth most efficient scorer in basketball this season, a 64.1% true shooting percentage, 23.9 points per game, and 11.6 assists per game. One of the best passers in basketball. I don't mean that vision-wise. I just mean with how he gets into the lane, all the guys collapse on him, and because of the talent of this Nets roster, it's just easy. Like, it is perfectly constructed to play. I mean, obviously, when you have these big stars, and we've already talked about the Nets offense, but man, when Harden can just get into the lane, and then you have to deal with four of the deadliest shooters in basketball. And yes, I'm including Jeff Green in that uh, because Jeff has been deadly on the catch and shoot this season. But Joe Harris, KD, um, Kyrie Irving, I mean, anybody that he is kicking out to is banging a shot. And it is it is the perfect offense around James Harden. It's so much fun to watch. He is so good in this role. It's just commanding all of this attention and letting his other teammates flourish. And he's been efficient in doing so. So I think Harden is a no-brainer starter in this game. Yes, his points per game uh, might be lower, but it doesn't matter. This is the most efficient James Harden we have ever seen. And an efficient James Harden is a deadly James Harden. So I agree. He is, to me, the no-brainer starter out of the Eastern Conference backcourt. And his adjustment has been really cool to watch. It is awesome to see him with this kind of talent around him. He's been such a heliocentric ball-dominant kind of guy who everything has to operate around, and he can still excel in that role, but he also has people who are just uh, so good at punishing other teams' mistakes, so good at punishing teams that try to key on on Harden to where they just can't do it now. And I think we see that's why he's the best out of isolation he's ever been. His isolation is way down as far as the percentage that he attempts, but his efficiency is significantly up from 1.12 points per possession last year to 1.25 this year. And you talk about efficiency, listen to this. James Harden is currently averaging career highs from the field, from two, from three, and from the free throw line. And as you mentioned, in true shooting percentage, his true shooting percentage in his time in Brooklyn is 67%. That's, if I'm not mistaken, the best in the league, better than Steph Curry, better than anybody else you can throw up there. It's like something we've never seen before. And then the playmaking, as you mentioned, it's such an ideal scenario with those shooters all around him, with DJ out of the pick and roll on lobs. It's just incredible to see him unlocked in this way. And 
I cannot wait to see what it looks like playoff time, but it's not like he's regressed as a player at all. He may not be scoring 36 a game. He's every bit the player he was last year. He's just in a situation where he's playing a different role, and he's still playing that role incredibly, incredibly well. So I'm a little more interested in who you have in the other backcourt starter spot. Who is it for you? I decided to start Bradley Beal this season, even though I believe I left him off of my ballot completely last season, even though he's kind of doing, you know, really similar things. And the knock on Beal obviously has not been efficient from deep. And at this point, if you're watching the Wizards game, yeah, man, Brad Beal just kind of chucks up threes uh, in will at this point because there's, there's no real ebb and flow to the offense. And when there is, it's not like they're converting attempts. But still, Brad Beal is one of the best mid-range killers in basketball. Um, from 8 to 16 feet, he's shooting 50%. From 16 to 24, he's shooting 47%. And the few goals that he's making for mid-range are mostly unassisted. Average, 65% of them are unassisted. And this is where I think you could argue against Brad Beal being a starter. 135 of his uh, shots have been assisted this year. 130 have been unassisted. And he's just been atrocious in the catch and shoot. That's not really his role. He's been bad from behind the arc, yes. And it plays into the fact that uh, the volume that he's shooting at. But he just hasn't been great from behind there. Um... But to speak to what he does playmaking-wise, he's averaging four and a half assists per game. That is much too low in like a really criminal kind of tunnel vision look at what he does as a playmaker. Out of fifty-five, out of um, out of sixty players to qualify for potential assists, he is fifty-fifth. Um, his teammates only convert his potential assists forty-eight percent of the time. That is absolutely abysmal. And he's been great at facilitating this season. His teammates just aren't knocking down shots. So I think Brad Beal is a little bit overestimated. As a scorer, I think he's a little bit underestimated as an assist man, but that those are the arguments for it against it. I can also say I do think Kyrie Irving uh, was the first guy off just because he has been Harden, KD, and Kyrie have all been top five in the most efficient scorers in basketball. So uh, Kyrie was definitely right off of mine. So I don't have Beal as a starter. I do want to say, though, I really disagree with one thing you said about him struggling off the catch. He's shooting 40% on catch and shoot threes this year, and that to me is part of the reason why I can justify having a guy like him on my ballot over a guy like Zach Levine, maybe. Now, Levine is having a great season off the catch as well, but it's the general off-ball value of Bradley Beal. It's the fact that he does try to do so much as a cutter, that he is so lethal for mid-range, that he does have such a knack for getting the line where he's taking eight and a half free throws a game, that he does actually elevate team offense so much where they are 12 points per 100 possessions better on the offensive end, going from by far the worst offense in the league to what would be ninth best when he's on the floor, I think also because of the playmaking value you touch on. So although the efficiency may not be elite, it's still pretty solid, 48-30-49 splits. It's not elite, but I think his offensive value is because of his versatility and some of the playmaking stuff, and just the fact that it's hard to be efficient when you have to shoot as much as he does, when you have so many offensively inept guys around you and defensively inept guys, and Beal is part of that, and I think that that is a legitimate counter as he's been so bad defensively. It's not enough to keep him off my ballot, though. He's not my starter, though. My starter is the guy you just mentioned, Kyrie Irving, who I think is having one of the greatest guard scoring seasons ever, and I have always been like the rest of America and the world, awestruck at Kyrie's skill, but I have been skeptical of how much he drives winning. And while I think that that is still fair to question to a certain extent because he's in the best basketball situation he could possibly be in, he is playing far and away the best basketball of his career, giving you 28.3 a game on 53.5% from the field, 44% from three, 92% from the line, shooting 54% from mid-range, 45.5% on pull-up threes, and the Nets are plus 9.1 points per 100 possessions, better with him on the floor than off it. 
Yes, part of that is he's playing with Harden. He's playing with KD. But his on-off splits are actually significantly better than Harden's even. So the offensive gravity is tremendous. The one-on-one creation is unstoppable. I think you see his playmaking value is uh, very prominent because even though maybe his raw assists per game aren't as high and he doesn't have the ball in his hands as much, he just has such incredible options to dish to, as is the case for Harden and KD, as we've talked about. But it's far and away a career season for him. It's easily the most impressed I've ever been. And whereas previous years, I think you could argue that he's certainly an overrated player in some circles. Maybe he still is, but I also think that we aren't talking enough about the fact that this is literally one of the greatest guard scoring seasons ever, and he's doing it in a winning situation, and he's elevating team offense as well. So he was a he was a relatively easy choice for a starter when all was said and done for me. And he's doing it with the ball less in his hands than in years previous. That in and it of itself is uh, just impressive. Yeah, I think that he could still honestly benefit from the gravity of his teammates a little bit more. I think he could be taking more threes off the catch. He does definitely still want to operate out of isolation a lot, but also you can't double him. He's seeing one-on-one looks time and again, and he's so brutally efficient there. You look at these shots that he takes, and they're not all easy shots, but it doesn't matter because he is so uh, otherworldly in his skill there. So we disagree there. Is there anything else that you want to say about Kyrie, who I assume is the first guy off your bench for the backcourt? Yeah, I mean, Kyrie is the first guy off. He's been the second most efficient uh, scorer in basketball this season. You touched on his shooting splits. It's insane that a guy uh, that shoots at this volume could still be doing that. And I want to speak to a point that you made about in isolation. Kyrie is 95th percentile in ISO. And when you can't double team him like years previous because of KD and Harden, he's unstoppable. Yeah, I think that we've seen that all year long. So I have Beal as my as my first guy off the bench. Actually, no, I don't. I have him as my second guy off the bench, but we already talked about him, so I think that that's enough there. Jalen Brown is my other guard off the bench. Who do you have? No, I've got Jalen Brown as well. So let's talk about it. Why does he have to be here? Um, Jalen has taken a massive leap in his game this season in literally every facet imaginable. He's a better playmaker. He is a better shooter. He is... The, the most fun thing I, I like about uh, watching Jalen Brown is watching a guys try to double-team him, and he just splits it and immediately gets to the rack. It's it's so much fun watching Jalen Brown, 26 points per game this season on 60% true shooting percentage. Uh, I just I never thought that Jalen Brown could become this, a guy that is dependable on the offensive end, that is uh, pretty good defensively, that uh, just that, that is shooting well on catch-and-shoot. It's... Jalen Brown is unreal. I just never thought that he had the potential to become this version of himself where he is a a top 15, a top 20 player in basketball. Uh, he's just unreal. Playmaking, shooting-wise, scoring, getting to the rack, getting to the line. He's more aggressive. Literally everything about Jalen Brown's game has improved this season. I agree across the board. Better pull-up game, better finishing around the rim. Playmaking is improved. Uh, efficiency is improved across the board. I think he has to be here. The reason I would maybe have him above Beal I don't think he's a better player than Bradley Beal, and I think that if we see Beal in a winning situation, maybe the efficiency does go up, but I do think his on-off splits are concerning. This is the second straight year when they have been slightly better with him off the floor than on it. That means something. They are atrocious defensively with him on the floor. That means something. Jalen doesn't have those same concerning stats. Yeah, he has more talent around him, and that's certainly a factor, but I just think he plays maybe more winning basketball in this context and is doing it more efficiently but I think you could go either way, and at this point, we're nitpicking between the hierarchy of my bench guards, so really no one cares. I think that if you have anyone other than these two, 
I'd be interested in hearing your case. The order between these two, I don't think matters as much and definitely is pretty close. Front court, who do you have as your first guy here? So this was a tough one for the first guy in my front court. I'm going to go with Bam Adebayo simply because of what he did with Jimmy Butler out and how he kept the Miami Heat afloat. Um, he's improved as a playmaker this season. He's improved as a jump shooter. He's not hes not afraid anymore to just pull that mid-range jumper if you give it to him. If you give him any amount of space on the perimeter, he's going to hit it in your face. Uh, 19.8 points per game this season, 9.4 boards, 5 assists on 57% from the field, 84% from the line. He's plus 5.6 in on-off splits. But my favorite thing about Bam Adebayo, we already know he's a great rim protector. We already know he's a great rotational and situational defender, um, switching on and off screens. Bam Adebayo is literally the best pick-and-roll defender in basketball. He is in the 100 percentile against the pick-and-roll, and that's switching when necessary. That is getting up in a guy's face when he beats a screen. That is getting back to the rim when a guy drives to the rim. He is one of the best defenders in basketball, and he doesn't really show up in the stat sheet because he doesn't average that many blocks per game. He doesn't average that many steals per game. But trust me, Bam Adebayo is still one of the best defenders in basketball. One steal, one block per game. Those numbers aren't going to tell you anything. He is just, he's so smart defensively in the paint. He is the ideal modern day five. And I think that he brings more defensive value than a guy like Jason Tatum. So that is why I went with Bam as my first front court guy. So I don't necessarily have this in an order, but I just want to say that I think I've seen a lot of people questioning whether or not Bam should be an all-star. And uh, that just baffles me. I think that you have to literally only look at points, rebounds, and assists if you're going to make that assessment. Bam is significantly better than last year, and I've talked about why, but a huge reason is what you talked about with the mid-range game, shooting 43% from there. That was never never a weapon that he had previously. It helps his game out of the post. He has a little pull-up game now. Guys can't sag off him as far. He's shooting incredibly well on floaters. Just a more skilled offensive player and a guy who drives winning, and even though the Heat haven't been a great team this season, they've been decimated by injuries. And I think that they are starting to turn around now that Jimmy is back out there healthy. And as you mentioned, the on-off splits are very favorable for him, which I think shows that he's not really at fault for their struggles. So maybe he doesn't have the same offensive load as some other guys who you might consider here, but it is a pretty big offensive load nonetheless. And there were a lot of games with Jimmy out where he had to be their alpha scorer, where he had to be their closer, where he's taking tough shots that you think, I've never seen Bam take and make those shots before, but he's taking and making them right now. And so I think he's a no-brainer. He was a no-brainer last year. He's a no-brainer this year. I don't know how we flip on these guys where it's, oh, is Bam a top 10 player in basketball when the Heat are making the finals? And then it's Julius Randle is better than Bam Adebayo the next year. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't track. Okay, nobody actually said that, right? I have seen many people picking him. Admittedly, probably a lot of Knicks fans picking Randall over him for the All-Star game. And I'm not saying that it's ridiculous to say that Randall is an All-Star. I think he has a case. I think it's ridiculous to say that Bam Adebayo doesn't have an all-star case. That's where I come down with it. So we agree on that. I don't necessarily have this in order, but who is another front court guy off the bench for you? Uh, the next guy, as I uh, mentioned, Jason Tatum. Uh, his points are up, a career high, 25.4 points per game, seven boards, four and a half assists on 44, 39, 88 splits, plus 10.1 are the Celtics uh, per 100 possessions with him uh, as is on all splits. I don't think this is the most impressed I've been with Jason Tatum. I think last season was the leap that I was expecting. He just looked like an absolute killer. And, and Jason, it's not like I'm saying that he isn't the same player that he was last season. He's a, still a pretty good playmaker. He's still a pretty good jump shooter. It just Jalen Brown has kind of taken over that killer, uh, like, you know, that takeover guy for this Celtic squad this season, in my opinion. And his, his percentages are slightly down, but... 
I don't know. Jason's just... I had so much promise for Jason Tatum this season, Carson. I was hoping that he would take this top 10, top 5 guy leap, and I've been a little underwhelmed that this is... I'm just coming to terms with the fact that this is what Jason Tatum is. I don't know how much better he can really get from here. I'm not ready to come to terms with that at all because he's 22 years old. And I think that the biggest deficiency that remains in his game is shot selection. He's taking way too many mid-range pull-ups this year. 4.8 shots per game are coming from mid-range for him versus just 3.1 last year. This was a problem he had early in his career. Then it looked like he fixed it. Now we're seeing him run more pick and roll. That's great. That's something he needs to continue to unlock his ceiling as both a playmaker and a scorer. But you don't want him settling for a bunch of mid-range pull-ups out of that. Now it's an incredible weapon to have in your bag, obviously, and essential when it comes to closing games. But he's only shooting 39% on them taking a career-low attempt of a career-low percentage of his attempts at the rim under 19% there. I do think that he has the potential to be a better player than we've ever seen because of the continued growth as a playmaker that we saw in the bubble last year. He is obviously one of the league's best jump shooters. He has a shot that is basically impossible to affect. He, as you mentioned, the on-off splits are great. The defense is great. But I do think it's been disappointing to a certain extent just because we haven't seen him fully uh, evolve into that alpha killer scorer night to night get into the rim drawing seven eight free throws a game that you wanted to see from him this season and I'd like to see the Celtics use him off ball more and what I mean by that I'd like to see him use him in the screen game because of the talent that are that is around him Jalen Brown Peyton Pritchard um, they just they have so many more dynamic ball handlers on this roster I'd like to see them utilize Tatum in a lot of ways I'm not saying that he shouldn't be handling the rock no Tatum's obvious next progression is becoming an absolute killer playmaker and scorer but there, there's so much more potential in this Celtics offense if they just don't utilize him as a ball handler. I agree, and I think that some pick-and-pop potential would be very interesting there. The dude is 6'8", and that's pretty deadly offense when you do have multiple ball handlers alongside him. I think that it's been a fine season for him. I think it's been a disappointing season for the Celtics as a whole, but I still think both of their young guys have to be all-stars. Last front court spot here, before we get into the wild cards, who do you have? So I went with Chris Middleton, and uh, Middleton has been a killer. Uh, 20.3 points per game on 50, 40, 90 this season. He's shooting 48% on catch-and-shoot attempts, and I got suckered in by this last year, Carson. I was hyping up Chris Middleton as a closer. Guess what? He's bringing me right back in. This season in the clutch, 47, 40, 100 in the clutch. He's been elite in that situation. Um, I do think the Bucs are still underutilizing Middleton. Uh, I think they need to use him as a ball handler more. He is so elite at just getting, you know, one or two dribbles and then banging a shot off of a screen. Uh, a little too much Giannis ball handling, a little too little for Middleton and uh, Holiday. Those are just issues I have with Mike Budenholzer in the Bucs offense. In the current role that Chris Middleton is in, is a shooter and a scorer. He has been elite this season. And uh, I don't know, like, like people are going to, I think historically, Carson, I think people are going to look at Chris Middleton and his numbers, and I think they may say, oh, the East is weak, and this is why he made it. No. Chris Middleton is a killer, man. He's one of the best shooters in basketball and just one of the best ISO scorers in basketball. I love watching him play, and I just don't want people to, to crap on him just because he doesn't have the name value of some of these other guys. And I think that he's a no-brainer here, and I think that we're all aware of that at this point. He, to me, uh, is having the best season of his career yet again. He did it last year. He did it the year before that, or maybe, I guess, two years before that. But he's just continued to get better throughout his career. His playmaking is really what stands out to me this season, up to 5.8 assists per game, and is handling out of the pick and roll a bunch. He's 87th percentile there. Doesn't make ridiculous reads, but can make a decent amount of passes, can basically 
analyze what's in front of him and make the right decision, but it's his pull-up game that is just so unstoppable from mid-range from three, his ability off the catch, all of that. Uh, incredible touch, and he fell just short of the 50-40-90 season last year, now at 51-44-90. I think he'll hold on strong, and yeah, that may be a meaningless, arbitrary place to draw the line, but that doesn't matter because those seasons get remembered historically, and uh, he deserves one of those seasons because he is a historically, historically efficient player, and he's doing it yet again in a winning context. The Bucks have maybe underachieved. None of that falls on him, in my opinion, and he deserves to be rewarded accordingly. Wild card time now. This is where it gets interesting because, as I touched on, there are some real difficult calls to make here in the Eastern Conference, in my opinion. Let's start with your first wild card. Who do you have? So I'm going with Ben Simmons, and it's weird, Carson, because I think a lot of people will look at Ben Simmons' raw numbers and uh, immediately assume that he shouldn't be an all-star. 15 points per game, 8 boards, 8 assists. And what's even stranger is it's the Sixers aren't using Ben Simmons in the traditional way that they had in the past, even as like this like half-court ball handler, even as in the pick-and-roll. He hadn't been good in the pick-and-roll this season, only four possessions a game, he's in the 32nd percentile. But I think it's a more effective way of sliding him into the post, letting Tobias Harris sit out there, letting Seth Curry. It opens up so much more spacing. And it's almost like, what were the Sixers doing before this? If guys weren't going to if guys were gonna clog the lane because Ben Simmons wasn't a threat on the perimeter, why would you keep sending Ben Simmons to the perimeter? It just didn't make any sense. So I think this is the best iteration of Ben Simmons that we have seen. Letting him go down to the post and letting him take all of his shots down there, letting him command attention where he commands attention. 90% of Ben Simmons' shots this season have come within 10 feet. He has the lowest usage rate of his career, but he's still averaging those assists. You know why? Because a great passer like Ben Simmons doesn't lose that passing vision in the post. He just finds different angles. Uh, I love what the Sixers have done with him moving him down there. He has the lowest usage rate of his career, but guess what? This is the highest free throw rate of his career. They are plus 9.4 per 100 possessions better with Simmons on the floor. They're one and a half points better defensively. They're 12 and a half points better offensively. So those offensive questions. Now, again, I do think he benefits from playing alongside Joel Embiid. Everyone has this season, but you can't look at those numbers and deny that Ben Simmons has been better on virtually both ends of the basketball this season. I think that this is an interesting choice because you have sort of a contrast here between Simmons, who is, I would say, playing winning basketball and maybe doing it in a less offensively demanding role. As you mentioned in the half court, doesn't have to carry the load there, can kind of take what comes to him and then commit himself fully on the defensive end. But I just think in a season when we are seeing offensive numbers like we've never seen before with a smaller sample size, I'm going to lean on guys who impact winning. And I think that that was my thought process throughout. And it really comes into play here with these choices. I think it came into play with Chris Paul as well. And I think that that equation favors Ben Simmons because, as you mentioned, he just does a bunch of winning stuff out there. He's a Swiss Army knife. And I think that he has, to a certain extent, a Draymond Green-esque impact on the game. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I think Pete Draymond is certainly a better player. And I think he is more of a genius on both ends of the floor. But Simmons, to me, is maybe the best perimeter defender in basketball right now. And I think that has incredible playmaking value there can stick with anybody and can truly guard point guards at an elite level, which you don't often see from six eleven guys. And yeah, he gets his buckets in a weird way, but does it on an efficient 60% true shooting is 78th percentile out of the post. Sometimes he's the role man, obviously still playing a lot in transition, but you mentioned the on off splits. I just think he impacts winning. He's in a situation where he's on an elite basketball team and he's a big part of that. 
I think that there's maybe a case to be made for his teammate Tobias Harris as an all-star, but to me, if I'm going to separate them from their situation and say who's more important, I think that that equation favors Simmons. So I have him as my first wild card as well. Second wild card, I think it gets even tougher here, but who do you have? Now, all of the wild cards out East were extremely tough. My next wild card spot goes to Trey Young, and this one's tough. Again, I think it plays into the dilemma of where do we value winning versus where do we value um, what a guy is doing offensive production, just raw numbers wise. And Trey has been uh, Trey has been elite at scoring. He's been elite at doing the same stuff that he always does. He assists well. He runs an offense well. He runs the pick and roll exceedingly well. Twenty five point nine points per game, four boards, nine assists this season. Not extremely efficient, but when there is, I wouldn't even say a lack of talent, when there are other guys who aren't nearly as good at playmaking as Trey, um, I would say he is still the offensive engine for this team and still who they should rely on. Again, my common complaint for the Hawks is still, man, I think they need to move the ball around more. They need to let other guys uh, create and let Trey become that off-ball weapon that he is almost destined to become at this point because he's such a weapon. But... Trey impacts winning more than other guys who I left off of my ballot, and we were going to have those debates. Um, Trey just impacts winning more. He's on the offensive end. He's still a liability defensively, but he play makes better than guys I left off. He shoots better than guys I left off, and he's he's fearless. So Trey, uh, Trey just impacts winning on the offensive end more than guys I left off my ballot. So I think this is an interesting one because... The Hawks have underachieved as of late. Sitting at 11-16, and 16, this is a team that we thought had playoff talent that was playing like a playoff team earlier in the season, and now they're not there. And I think that some people might look to who is the culprit for that and say, Trey Young. I had to launch a pretty avid defense of my Trey Young selection against a very angry Carvel Teft, friend of the show who we have had on a couple times before, who was saying that he is sort of the front man who deserves to take the fall there. But I think you can only tr- hold Trey Young accountable for what happens when he's on the court, right? And... The Hawks' offense is 13 points per 100 possessions, better with him on the floor than off it. You can say, okay, that's what happens when you design an entire offense around a guy who's ball dominant. That's why LeBron offenses suck when he's not on the floor. That's why Russell Westbrook offenses suck when he's not on the floor, whatever. But it's not just on off splits. They go from what would be the worst offense in basketball with him off the floor to what would be fourth best, tied with the Utah Jazz, the best team in basketball, who we celebrate for being this paragon of ball movement and shooting and playing the game the right way and all that. With him on the floor, the Hawks have a net rating of plus 3.7. That would make them the sixth best team in basketball. The sixth best team in basketball. So the 11-16 and 16 record has nothing to do with what Trey Young has done, and he has his issues. He can hold on to the ball for too long. Maybe he doesn't play the most aesthetically beautiful style. He sucks defensively. All of that can be true, and he can still be one of the more unique offensive engines we have in this game whose playmaking elevates his teammates to another level than we see from a Zach Levine or a Julius Randle or any of those guys who, yeah, maybe are putting up gaudy numbers, but I also think Trey's efficiency is better than the raw shooting splits indicate because he's 59% true shooting. He gets to the foul line a bunch. He shoots a bunch of threes and makes them, and all those things make him more efficient than maybe the raw numbers would suggest, which I think is 41.7% from the field. So I think his gravity and his impact on winning on the offensive end, as you mentioned, makes him the choice for me here. And there was a time where my stomach was churning a little bit and I was a little bit nervous, But I think ultimately that's what it comes down to if I'm going to try to win. Do I think I can win and be an elite offense with Trey Young as my best offensive player? Absolutely. Do I with Zach Zach Levine or Julius Randle? I absolutely do not. So I do want to ask, though, do you think a reason that the Hawks' offense is so bad with Trey off the floor is because guys just don't really know their roles when he's off the floor? 
I do think that that's a reason, but I also think that that has nothing to do with the fact that they're a top five offense when he's on the floor, and that's what matters. I understand your question, but I'm just saying we can't frame things like that when no matter what they're doing with him off the floor, they're elite with him on the floor. I'm not saying that has anything to do with Trey. I'm just saying that I think that it has more to do with coaching and how they're running this offense in general. And you may be onto something there. I also do think, again, we've talked about it. Trey could learn to maximize his off-ball value. Maybe there could be a little more ball movement here, but the results are great when he's on the court. They're the sixth best team in basketball by net rating. I don't know how many more times I need to say that, but that's an elite basketball team, and that's in large part due to him. So let's talk about some of the tough cuts because there were plenty of them in the Eastern Conference. Who would you say was your first guy off? So I'm not going to cap. Zach Levine was not my first cut. My first cut was Tobias Harris. And, dude, I tried hard. I wanted to get three Sixers on this team just to— I, just to make my all-star ballot weird, um, 20 points per game, seven boards, three assists for Tobias. Uh, we've talked about him. He's just, he's shooting at the best rate of his career. This is the best role we've ever seen him in. He just, he fits so well alongside this team in ways that he didn't last season. And I wanted to reward him for uh, just how much he has improved from last year because we criticized the hell out of Tobias Harris last year for not being the ideal fit. I talk, We talked about maybe moving him to a different roster. I also think they've been alleviated by you know, obviously moving off of Al Horford, but uh, Tobias has been elite this season and one of the best players out East. It really hurt my heart to not be able to put him on this team. Yeah, he was actually my first cut as well. And you mentioned it, just all-time efficiency right now, 52, 42 and a half, 90 splits. What it came down to for me is, ultimately, I just don't think I'd be considering him as much if not for team success. I think that you can look at his efficiency and say, maybe it's comparable to Chris Middleton, but I don't think he has nearly the value as a playmaker. And... Whereas Middleton is clearly the second most important guy on his team, I would say that Harris is third. So he's a tough cut for me as well. But I just kept coming back and saying, okay, I want the more efficient guy on the better team. And then I was like, do I in any world think that what Tobias Harris does is harder or more important than Trey Young? And I didn't. And that's why I went with Trey Young. Let's talk about Julius Randle now. We'll get into Zach Levine. Julius Randle was actually my second cut though. So did he come into the equation for you at all? Okay, I mean, from watching Julius Randle, there are so many a- aspects of his game that he's improved on this season. He's an improved jump shooter. He's improved at, you know, at the fadeaway. Like, all, all types of jump shots Randle has improved on, even from deep. I believe he's shooting 40%. He's even better at seeing the floor, and that is a component of him just running the offense and having the ball in his hands, but also just because he, he's genuinely a better passer. But when we get back to the crux of it, the crux of why guys make the All-Star team— Julius Randle does not impact winning in any way that the guys on the list do. Even Tobias Harris, I would say, this is all situational because the New York Knicks have barely any talent. If Emmanuel quickly was getting the amount of touches he was, he'd for sure be an all-star this season. Um, and this is just me just hating on Randle. Look, Julius is an improved player. He just doesn't impact winning. Yeah, I think that he has done a tremendous job stepping up and playing a role that not many guys are capable of doing at the level that he has and the efficiency is improved. At the same time, the raw numbers maybe look a little better for him than they are in reality because his true shooting percentage is identical to that of Trey Young, even though he's shooting like 5% better from the field because he doesn't have the same free throw attempts, uh, doesn't have the same volume of threes and all that. And just as you mentioned, doesn't elevate guys in the same way. He's certainly a capable playmaker and an improved one there, but he does still have the ugly possessions where it's just too much Julius Randle and he misses opportunities and The Knicks' offense is still 21st in offensive rating with him on the floor, and it's tempting to reward the team that has overachieved, but the team has overachieved 100% because of defense, where they're a top three team in basketball. 
That's why they've won as many games already as I thought they would win this entire season. And while Julius Randle may be the most inspiring part of that story, while he may be playing much better basketball than we've ever seen before, again, it's about the context. We're seeing just offensive numbers across the board like we've never seen before. There's another another dude with better numbers who is actually driving winning more for his individual team, even if the record doesn't reflect that, and that's Trey Young. So I'm sorry, Knicks fans. I hope that we earn some bonus points with Logan's video on Emmanuel quickly so you guys can forgive us. Let's talk about Levine now because I think that he is the guy who a lot of people are banging the drum for. Why couldn't he make your team? Again, it, just like Julius Randle, this is purely situational. Um, any other great scorer on this Bulls team that was getting the amount of possessions that he is would be doing similar things. And I'm not saying that efficiency-wise, I'm saying points-wise, the 28 points per game. Um, because his efficiency has been amazing this season. 51% from the field, 43% from deep, 85% from the line. But... Zach just doesn't make his teammates better. Just like we said about Julius Randle, he just doesn't... No player alongside Zach Levine has drastically improved. Um, I'd say, what, Laurie Markinen looks a little better this season, but Laurie Markinen just sucked last year. So what does it really matter? Levine's a really good scorer. He's a really good bucket getter, but we've always known that about Zach Levine. He doesn't drive winning, and he doesn't make his teammates better. So why should he be on the all-star team? Yeah, I just think it's really hard to turn down this level of, of efficiency because it's not just the volume. When you have a dude who's giving you 51.5% from the field, 43% from three, 85% from the line, around 65% true shooting, that's really historic. But I think, again, we're seeing numbers across the board like we've never seen before, and there's a few stats that I think are very telling to the deficiencies of Zach Levine. When he sits, the Bulls' defensive rating is 99. That would be far and away the best in basketball. They allow about 14 points per 100 more with him on the floor, which is the first percentile as far as on-off splits. It's atrocious, and no other Bulls starter is nearly that bad. That really matters. His on-off splits are terrible, negative 10.6. His scoring hasn't translated in the clutch when he's just 36% for the field, 27% from three, and... He doesn't have that same kind of Trey Young, Bradley Beal impact offensively where they go from being terrible to actually being elite. Their offense is just a little bit better with him on the floor. And he deserves credit. He's having a great season by his standards. But again, when I ask the question, can I see myself having a really good offense with this guy's my best offensive player? No, I can't. And that is just the case with Zach Levine. Anybody else who was tough for you to cut? Yeah, two guys. Um, I would say I took a brief look at DeMontis Sabonis and then I saw his on-off splits. The Pacers are literally 16.5 points better with him off the floor. So I think that says something about you, DeMontis. You need to change how you've been playing basketball. You know, I talk about um, how ISO they've been, how dependent they have been on just Sabonis and Brogdon, and how it did not translate to good offense. It doesn't translate to good basketball. It's why those on-off splits uh, speak to that. And then I really wanted Gordon Hayward to make my all-star team just to be weird um, because he's been the engine for the Hornets. Like, LaMelo's look good. Um, Terry Rozier has had his moments, but... Night in, night out, the most dependable guy on this Hornets team has been Gordon Hayward, um, and he does everything for them. He handles the rock. He gets to the bucket. He makes tough shots. He um, has been elite in the mid-range this season. He's been elite from deep. But, again, the Hornets just haven't won enough games. So, And, again, if uh, this is why he's that low. If I wasn't going to put Zach Levine with what he's been doing efficiency-wise, I wasn't going to put Gordon Hayward on my list. Yeah, I think that that makes sense. And Hayward does have, I would say, more playmaking value, can elevate his teammates more, but not by enough to actually get the all-star nod in my eyes. I really did consider, Logan, Jimmy Butler. He's only played 15 games, but per capita, I would say, is certainly an all-star. And it's so tough to factor that in this season because you think 15 games, it's only five less than Kyrie Irving, for example. And is that enough to make it? 
I ultimately decided no, that he hadn't been exceptional enough, even though I do think he's done a lot for the Heat and has taken them from kind of a dumpster fire to being a playoff caliber team. I also considered Sabonis, as you mentioned. I think the on-off splits are telling, though, and I also considered Nikola Vucevic, who I think is having the better season of the two, is having an incredible year from beyond the arc, and we've talked about it before, but just does so much for this offense out of the post in dribble handoffs, if you would prefer that I say it all the way through, uh, from really all three levels as a playmaker, having a great season, but the Magic are also 14 points per 100 worse with him on the floor, and yeah, obviously there's some clutter that goes into these metrics, but they're by and large right. You can see guys who impact winning have positive on-off splits and guys who don't have negative on-off splits, and when it's a number like negative 14, the alarms go off, and that's just a disqualifier, in my opinion. So that keeps him off. Uh, I considered a couple of Raptors, Lowry, Fred Van Fleet. I don't think they had a strong enough case considering the Raptors aren't winning that many games. I considered Colin Sexton, who's having just a phenomenal offensive season. When I say considered, though, I mean kind of briefly wrote down their name and was like, uh, probably not. So that's where we come down on it. Those are our all-stars, 24 of them, some really tough cuts. We are really witnessing a revolution in the NBA. We are seeing dudes put up not just raw numbers, but on efficiency that I didn't think was possible that I thought could only exist in video games. And it is now happening in reality. So that means there's going to be some tough cuts. I see places tweeting Zach Levine's numbers, Julius Randle's numbers. He should be an all-star. You just got to understand the context and the fact that there's a reason that you can say that guys like Zach Levine and Julius Randle should be all-stars because they're putting up all-star numbers in every other year, just not this year. So timeout, did we have the exact same all-star team for both? Whoa. Yeah, we actually did. I hope you guys enjoyed the variety of content there and the very um, distinct thinking that you got. Wow, that's pretty funny. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I realized that about the East. Okay, there you go, guys. 24 players were named today as all-stars, and officially those are the only correct all-star choices. Nobody else is valid. That's... uh, That's the conclusion from today. So that will do it for us here. You can go ahead and check out our most recent episode. We did a trivia time this Monday, which was loads of fun. We are also producing a lot of YouTube content these days. We've done a video on why Nikola Jokic is having the greatest offensive season of any big man ever, why Emmanuel Quickly is a future NBA superstar, and why the Rockets, who are 0-6 without Christian Wood, need him desperately and why he makes them a playoff caliber team. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh, on Instagram at nerdsesh. And as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh.